feel free to um, keep that round of applause going for me. <sighs> Just uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so for those I haven't met, uh, me, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. I'm on staff with Hope. And uh, I told, I should have told Brian that now is the time to make the financial appeal. So you have the kids, then you do the financial appeal. Uh, no, we don't, like he said, we don't talk a lot about money here at Hope. The one thing I'll add to what, to what he was sharing earlier is um, we, we believe the gospel. And so we, we believe that we are not um, on a mission to save ourselves by our own good deeds, but rather we have been gifted and given salvation through our faith in Jesus and through the grace of God. And so therefore, anything we would give financially would be something that is not something to earn points with God, but rather to, to, to uh, demonstrate his generosity, which he has shown us. And so that's kind of that. Uh, we are in week two of Born Unto Us, our Christmas series here at Hope. And we are kind of looking at these nativities, these, these birth scenes in the Bible that we get that are kind of all pointing us to uh, the birth of Christ, which we just sung about and thought about, reflected on. And I wanted to think about just a couple, because those are impossible. The stories of these births are kind of impossible. So I wanted to think about some Christmas-focused impossibilities. And so I just have a few here for us. It is, uh, the first one here is just a bunch of the Hallmark movies, which are kind of all the same. Uh, I don't know, Christmas Miracle, Ice Sculpture Christmas. I think they're just running out of names at this point. But I, it's two things. It's impossible uh, to watch all of these. There's just too many to watch. But secondly, it's impossible that any of these are good. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. Some of these, we watch them every year. We watch one. We pick one. I think this year it's Christmas Prince. That's going to be, they are, they're all, it's, it's just wild how many of these there are. Second, um, if you are this, I just, there's this kind of person who uh, decorates the, for Christmas while Thanksgiving is yet to happen. Uh, I do not do this. I think if it, if you do this, it is impossible that you're not weird. Uh, so that's just, you disagree with me if you want, but I, that one. Uh, third one, I just got to read this tweet here. Mary, this is from Mary's perspective. Well, I just had a baby in a barn. So thanks to everyone who bought gifts. The gold, the perfumes, all things babies love. Also, the child who inexplicably played drums like right in my face. This, this was great. Uh, so we, uh, and this is the impossibility here. I, you could disagree and you could uh, email me, brian at hopecc.com if you disagree. But the, I don't think it's possible to genuinely like the Little Drummer Boy song. All right, take me, all right, if you like it, that's fine. And last, we've talked about this one before. We've all seen these Lexus commercials. I don't know who's giving the gift, the, the husband or the wife in this commercial, but giving a Lexus with the bow on top. And I think this is the last Christmas impossibility in which it is impossible that they did not have a huge marital conflict right after this. What are you doing? We don't have 60,000 or whatever. I don't know what Lexus is going for these days. Um, I do want to talk about this ad campaign. I was an advertising major at the U of M uh, because it's on the line of impossible. Talk about transition points. Uh, so impossible is nothing. Anyone remember this ad campaign from Adidas? Maybe it's more just because this was literally my major that I think about this stuff. Um, but impossible is nothing. Adidas ran these. They would grab athletes. It was actually a line from Muhammad Ali. But they would grab these athletes and they would look at their journey, look at their story, look at the obstacles they overcame. And so it was kind of cool to highlight an athlete's journey to kind of arriving at the success they had. But it, it, this was the line, essentially, that impossible is nothing. And so 
this was really a huge campaign for Adidas. They would grab all these athletes and show their journey and how they got to where they got. Um, it, it taps into this kind of universal human desire to, to overcome obstacles, to achieve greatness. In fact, here's the line from the first ad of it. This is actually Muhammad Ali's daughter, Layla, doing the voiceover. And she said, some people listen to themselves rather than listen to what others say. They remind us that once you set out on a path, even though critics may doubt you, it's okay to believe there is no can't, won't, or impossible. They remind us it's okay to believe impossible is nothing. So what this is called in the, in the biz is aspirational storytelling. So you're, you're going to identify with this brand because they've shown you a story that you can relate and aspire to. You can be inspired by it. And I wanted to highlight this because I think it's brilliant. I mean, humans do. It's unreal. The amount of human potential, the way that people can overcome obstacles. Uh, it, we, can't, we can't look at that. But, uh, but it is, I feel like it's only half true. Because there are things in life where it, you can't, or it won't, or it is impossible. All of us in this room have, have had at least one thing in our lives where it's like, yeah, that's just seems like it can't, it won't, it is impossible. So maybe we do need more than simply aspiration. Maybe we need more than self-belief and kind of not listening to the critics. And that's what we get in the Christmas story. We see we need God to do the impossible, and that's what happens. We're going to be looking at that today. God does the impossible. We're going to grab a passage from Genesis 18 uh, as we look at the birth of Isaac here uh, in the Old Testament. Um, but last week we talked about born unto us. Again, we looked at Cain and then Jesus. And Brian showed us how how there's contrast between the two, uh, how Cain is cursed and, and then Jesus undoes the curse, how Cain kills the righteous, how Jesus dies for the unrighteous. He showed us all these connections. But in that, we also saw the pain of the curse, the impact of sin. We saw the shame and the pain that Eve would have felt as sin came into the world. And Brian showed this image here of Mary consoling Eve with the baby Jesus uh, to be born. And, and Mary there standing on the head of the serpent saying, this curse is ending. Consoling the shame out of Eve with the son, the arrival of her son. And, and so Jesus, we saw last week, comes to redeem as far as the curse is found. And we're going to see a little bit more connections as we look at the birth of Isaac. So here's where we're going today. We're going to trace out the narrative. We're going to look back at, the, at that Old Testament story. And this is, I'm talking old. This is like Old Old Testament. It's like right at the beginning. Um, and so some of you maybe were around when this was written, but I don't know. That's uh, just a joke. That's a joke. Uh, so, all right. We're going to look at the narrative. Uh, no left. That's okay. Uh, we're going to look at connections in the story. Just going to make some connections, primarily between the two mothers, Sarah and Mary. And then we're going to look at connections between Isaac and Jesus, these two promised sons. And then third, we're going to look, does this, does this connect to our story? Does this impact our lives today? So that's kind of where we're going. So let's start with tracing out the narrative. A broad brushstroke of what's happened up to this point. We're going to start in Genesis 12. So let's recap Genesis 1 through 11 very quickly. The beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story that God wants us to hear and know. In Genesis 1, God creates all things. He's the creator. He makes things good. He, he loves them. He delights over them. In Genesis 2, we get man and woman, and, and God delights over them, and they're naked and unashamed. In Genesis chapter 3, Brian looked at last week that sin enters the world. The man and the woman are deceived, and they choose to be rulers of themselves instead of being in relationship with God. And that brings curse. That brings curse upon creation. That brings curse upon childbirth and, and work and all these things. And, and, and sin just disrupts the entire beauty of the world. 
And then we kind of watch uh, in chapter four where Cain murders his brother. We see sin just starting to explode and, and it just gets worse and worse. At different times, there's judgment. We see all this. And up to Genesis 11, we get the Tower of Babel and people are kind of saying, we can make a name for ourselves. We're going to be God. And God judges again spiritually. He disperses the nations. He separates the tongues. And so it's looking pretty hopeless up until Genesis 11. We get zero pages. We turn the very next page and we get Genesis 12. And we're wondering, what is God going to do about this? It says in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we get this news that, okay, God has dispersed people and separated them so that they wouldn't keep trying to be like God, but now there's going to be a blessing for all the families of the earth. Abram is going to be blessed, and then he's going to be a blessing? How's this going to work? I think what we see implied here, if there's going to be a blessing that goes forward, is that children are implied. Abram is going to have children that are going to carry this blessing forward. He's going to have a family. He's going to create nations from himself. But if we go back one, back to Genesis 11, we see this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. So children are implied. We have this tension, though, that Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. She, she can't have children. And we have to understand something. This is traditional cultures at this time. We have to understand traditional cultures a little bit. So in this time, it was highly agrarian society. So for uh, the wife, very, very important to her identity that she would be able to have children, that she would be able to have a family and children to work the land and care for it, but also heirs to continue the family name. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. We have to understand in that culture, you received your identity. You received your identity from your family and from who you, what you did. In this case, women received their identity from being moms. They received their identity from creating offspring that could again run the farm, carry on the lineage. So we see Sarah looking to receive her identity from this, but not being able to do this. So we feel, we could feel, maybe we've experienced this, the tension, the pain, the shame, the confusion, the loss of identity that she's going through. And this is going to continue on. This, this is going to continue in the story for a while, this tension. So let's sit in it a little bit. In fact, we see it right here. Like Genesis 15, 3 through 6, Abram is now talking to God. And he says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So more time has passed and Abram's like, hey God, you promised an heir. I have no children. I got to make this child and this in my household, but he's not my child. An heir? What's going on here? And we see Abram's faith. He believes God's going to do this. God actually right after this makes a covenant with Abram. It's very one-sided. What we see, though, from this, this is actually a mountaintop moment. He believed the Lord, and, it, and God counts it to him as righteousness. But right after this, he's going to start questioning in the promise. And we question the same way. We say, if God doesn't give me what I want, the way that I want, then he's not good. 
I'm going to take matters into my own hands to accomplish what I want. We see that happen with Abram and Sarai right now. In Genesis 16, we see that they take Hagar. This was a common practice in the time to be a concubine and to give birth to a son. This picture uh, is painted by an artist called Camille Corot. It's called Hagar in the Wilderness. I like to show it. I've shown it before because what we get is this scene where Ishmael and Hagar have been cast out. They are not the children of the promise. Hagar uh, gave birth to Ishmael for Abraham, but Sarai despised them, and so they sent them out. And so they're just exposed in the wilderness and ready to die. And I love this painting because we see, if you look in the distance, there's the angel of the Lord. That what Abram and Sarai did in exploiting and casting Hagar out, God will not do. He cares, and he comes, and he saves them. But right away we saw Abram trust the Lord and immediately tries to take matters into his own hands because he's waiting on this promised son. And yet all this time, Sarai is barren. Genesis 17 hits and they, and they remake the covenant with God. He changes their names. And then we get to Genesis 18. And the scene where the Lord kind of visits Abraham and Sarah. And we get this random, this is our passage for today. Genesis 18, 9 through 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now keep in mind, Abraham's like 100. She's like 90 at this point. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Never laugh to yourself in front of God, apparently, because it, he knows. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Look at what it says there. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or in other words, is anything impossible for the Lord? So God makes this promise. And we go ahead in the narrative to Genesis 21. It says this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when he did this, when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I didn't do it justice when I read that, but she says, God has made laughter for me. We, we read that. It's easy to read that and think, oh, people are going to laugh at over her in derision. No, this is a rejoicing. What God has done, we've got to see this. Let's just look at verse one. God visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. You know what he did? He turned her laughter of unbelief and derision into laughter of joy. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children. This is a miracle, this birth. God does what he promised. He does the impossible. He turns barrenness into blessing. 
actually, as we go on in the story, oftentimes the Old Testament physical realities become spiritual realities. The physical temple in the Old Testament becomes a spiritual temple that God is building in us by His Spirit. We have all these different examples of physical to spiritual. What we see in the New Testament is that it's not necessarily physical barrenness, but we actually, all of us, have a spiritual barrenness in the sense that we have the inability to create life in ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves new, which makes, brings me back to this campaign, Impossible is Nothing. Again, traditional culture said, receive your identity by what you do. Modern cultures say, reject any received identity. Don't let anyone tell you who you are, what you do, what defines you. No, 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 no. Don't receive your identity. You create your identity, right? We're told this all the time. Impossible is nothing. You can live your truth. Find your authentic self, live it out. Create your identity. Reject received identities. Do the impossible. Make yourself new. Don't be defined by what you do. Don't be defined by who you are. Be defined by who you make yourself, who you become. But we need more than that. We realize that doesn't satisfy anyone who's tried any sort of self-help project, self-transformation project, New Year's resolution. We know we fall short. What if what we need is not a received identity based on what we do or a created identity based on how we can change ourselves or transform ourselves? What if what we need is a received identity based on something that's been done for us, based on the work of another? That's what we see as we go on in the gospel story. Let's look at the story of Mary now, because we're going to see the miracle of the incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh, uniting himself to us, being born a baby in a humble manger to show just how humbly he wanted to come into this world. We're actually going to see Mary act in kind of that way of receiving the work of another. Let's go. Luke 1, 26-38 says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth, named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has already conceived a son, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. When, we, when Mary is going through this, he gives her that story. If we read previously, we see Elizabeth, her cousin, a relative, an old age, has also conceived Elizabeth previously being barren. And he says, why? Nothing will be impossible with God. That child would be John the Baptist and Mary, of course, to give birth to Jesus. But look at her response, verse 38. I'm the servant of the Lord. Do you think she has Sarah in the back of her mind? 
Isaac, when God brings these immense promises to her, what we see from her is that she receives the word of promise with faithfulness. She trusts what God says. He can do the impossible. So let's look at some connections in the story again, starting with the two mothers. We see Sarah old and barren. We see Mary young and unmarried. Sarah has shame for her barrenness. Mary shame for her pregnancy. They both have promised royal sons. Impossible. We see the Lord fulfill this promise. Sarah laughs at first in derision, then in joy. Mary says, I'm your servant. Sarah experiences the pain of not getting pregnant. Mary, the pain of being pregnant before she expected. And then we'll look at in Genesis 22, the sword is spared from Sarah's son, but Mary's not only told, well, well, Jesus will die, but a sword will pierce, in a sense, her own soul also, that on the cross, when Jesus dies, that's still her boy. So we've got to look at that connection then between Isaac and Jesus. We've got to go back the story of Genesis 22. We can't shy away from it. I actually chose an intentionally pretty graphic image here of Abram, Abraham now with Isaac, his son, on the altar. And many accounts will say that Isaac, often we think he's a boy. Many accounts will say, no, Isaac is, is actually an adult man at this time when he goes with his father up to the mountain. This is Genesis 22. It's intentionally graphic, and I did that on purpose because we read this passage and we say, how could God ask this of Abraham? How could God do this? And I think in the back of our minds, we say, if we can look at God, maybe even just particularly the God of the Old Testament, say, he's unjust. The things he does are unjust. Then we can say, I don't have to trust him. I can reject him. If I can look at him and say, morally, you don't match up with what I think is right, God, then I can reject him. But what if he is right? What if he has a greater context? What if he gets to decide what is just? What if he gets to decide what is true? What if he gets to decide... What is best? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So often we go to the Bible, we scrutinize God, but what if we let the Bible read us? What if we can see, as we zoom out the context, something greater? What if there's something in this Isaac story that points us to Jesus? So let's look at it. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Burnt offering is kind of a worship uh, offering to the Lord. So Abraham rose early in the morning, how was that night of sleep, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had sent him, told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, if you're paying attention, look at verse 5. We know what God told him, but Abraham, Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we're coming back. I want to say one thing on this before we move on in the narrative. If God really is who he says he is, if he's truly worthy of our worship, our ultimate worship, then there is nothing that he can't ask of us. 
There's nothing he can't ask us to lay down for him. Because we have to trust then that on the other side is something greater. That it will help us worship him in a new way, a greater way. If God is truly worthy of our ultimate worship, there's nothing he can't ask of us. Let's see that further in the story. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So Isaac is going to carry the wood up the mountain. So the both of them together, they went. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham's faith fulfilled. A ram appears in the thicket. Isaac is spared. They might have gone through a little family counseling after that, a little therapy, but Isaac was spared. That was a joke. It's okay to laugh. Uh, yeah. All right. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now we might read that and say, oh, okay, so once he did the good work, then God blessed him. These words here are just repeated all throughout. God has always said he would do this. He's just showing Abraham now what the message or how that's going to be going forward, how the blessing is going to be carried forward, and it's faith that leads to obedience. Trusting God and what he has declared he will do. We actually learn from the author of Hebrews uh, that this, this very thing. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this son Isaac, figuratively speaking, comes back from the dead. Because God, maybe, I think we were going to see, God had a greater context than our initial judgment. So I want to go now to a different mountain. This is the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives that's meant to be Jesus praying. Because we're going to see another intense trial for a different promised son. And right now, as the, as the mountain was in view for Isaac, right now the altar of the cross is in view for Jesus. Let's look at this passage here in Gethsemane from Matthew 26. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them, again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So Jesus goes through this time of testing. And we see comparisons in the story. This is his mountain that he goes to. Some comparisons between Isaac and Jesus, both children of promise, both blessings, both born in this kind of nature and provision, miraculous birth. Isaac is the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3 will tell us Jesus is actually the true seed of Abraham. That when Abraham looked up in all those stars and said, so shall your offspring be, one of those stars became the star that rested over Jesus in Bethlehem because Jesus was that true seed. Both obedient to their father, Isaac, though, spared death on the mountain. Jesus, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, gets the answer that he will not be spared death. I want to see that again. In Matthew 26, 39, it says, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We saw in the passage with Mary, we've seen in the Bible, all throughout, Nothing is impossible with God. We know this. In fact, Jesus just said it in Matthew 19 when he said that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples heard this. They were greatly troubled and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So seven chapters earlier, we see Jesus himself saying, God can do anything. Everything is possible with God. Let's go back though. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Jesus knows it is possible, but is it possible? Is it in God's will? And he says, not as I will, but as you will. And here we learn that it is not possible for God to overlook sin and evil, to deny justice. It is not possible for God to let the cup of wrath pass from Christ if he wants to save us. When Jesus prays this, he's saying, is it possible? There is no ram in the thicket for Jesus. Do you see the love of the Father for you? This is his son, his only son, whom he loves. And he does not withhold. Quickly, let's make then some connections to our story. Christ being born unto us reveals a few things. First, it reveals that God is just, wise, and merciful. No matter what we might think, we can trust him or reject him, but never because we know more than him. 
Secondly, God's timing and provision is always right no matter what we think of it or when it happens for us or what he gives us. Third, we see nothing is impossible with God, including, and thank God, overcoming our sin, our resistance, our rebellion, our desire to create ourselves apart from him. No, Jesus saved sinners to the uttermost. Again, Tim Keller says this, when Jesus Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane, and the ultimate darkness was coming down on him, and he knew it was coming. He didn't abandon you. He died for you. If Jesus didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now in yours? Friends, this is what we need. This is a received identity based on what's been done for us. This is a security that says, I'm not defined by what I do, and I'm not defined by who I become. Rather, I'm defined by what God says of me and what Jesus has done for me. He's the only person who can do this. He's the only person that can make you new. And he does it by entering into the pain, the shame, the alienation that you feel. Jesus dies exposed, alone, alienated from the love of his father because he's bearing the wrath for sin. The love of his father, which was for his entire life, his source of joy and his identity marker. He loses so that we can gain. He dies on the cross as the ram in the thicket so that we can walk away in the arms of the father. So then we need this grace. We need this grace, this work of another at Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. Receiving light and life from the Lord. I'm just going to close by reading a quote from a woman named Ann Voskamp in a book called The Greatest Gift. I just want you to sit under this. Think about in your life the light that you need in the darkness, the life that you need. What we need at Christmas, she says, wait through the long black night. Wait through the black that gets into your marrow. Wait through the dying, the cries you can't hear, the lurching gasp of the last death heave. Sit through the night and the losses that scrape the sides of the soul. The burning tears that run, run through the night even now. Taste their saltiness and the darkness that seeps in cold at the corners and stains a thousand souls all alone. Wait in the cosmic dark. Inhale the black of an endless universe. Stare into it and feel the darkness get darker. No hint of help, no rumor of relief, no sign of saving for us waiting through the night, waiting through the dark. And then, then it comes to the waiting, to the leaning, to the cold, a dawn, light, light, not mere candles wavering in the face of the black, but a dawn, a fire that the people walking in darkness did not set, but that they saw. A light that the people in the dark couldn't ignite, couldn't inflame, and couldn't fabricate, but could only find. Christmas can only be found. Christmas can only be bought. Christmas cannot be created. Christmas cannot be made by hand, lit up, set out, dreamed up. Christmas can only be found in the mire and in the stench and in the unexpected and only in the dawning of Christ. We are saved from our loneliness because God is love and he can't stand to leave us by ourselves, to ourselves. That is the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is not that we can make peace or that we can make love, make light, make 
gifts or make this world save itself, the message of Christmas is that this world's a mess and we can never save ourselves from ourselves and we need a Messiah for unto us a child is born. Nothing is impossible with God because unto us a child is born, that child who would grow up and become a savior, the ram in the thicket who dies for us. So as we close, I just want to ask, has Jesus been born unto you? You might be hearing this for the first time. Has the light dawned in your heart, maybe today? Are you made new by Jesus or are you trying to create yourself? by what you do or who you become, who you are, what you build your identity on. If you have, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then today let's just receive a fresh light and life from him. We get to do that now in communion. We practice communion here every week so that we can remember what Jesus has done for us, the, the work that we receive, the identity that we receive, what he says of us, what he's done for us. Communion, again, represented here on both sides. The bread which represents his body broken for us. The juice which represents his blood shed for us. The work he's done on the cross. We get to receive that grace afresh, taking communion. Here, if you're wanting to take that, here at Hope we practice, we call open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, that he's been born unto you, that you trust and follow him. I'm going to pray the worship team's going to come back up. We'll sing a couple songs and, and close out the service here. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for your love of us, that you did not withhold your Son, your only Son, whom you love, but rather that he was caught up in the thicket for us, that he did not walk away from death. He did walk out of the grave, though, so that we can know we have secure life in him, that we are okay in Jesus we don't have to build our identity on who we are, what we do, what we can make ourselves into, but rather we receive an identity that we are okay in Jesus. We are beloved by you, Father. So I pray that that would sink into our hearts this Christmas season, that you would help us to trust you more as we wait in the darkness, that you would help us to hope more in you, and that you would just grip each and every one of our hearts in worship this season to praise you, to praise your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.